0: Amen. Please be seated. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 31, chapter 31 and 32 will be our focus. This is found on page 592 in your pew Bible. But do have these chapters open, uh, whatever your version is, your electronic version or your hard copy. I want you to uh, think for a moment about the cycle of your own life as we continue through Isaiah. There are cycles that the people of God go through. And in almost every case, there's some personal application that we can directly relate with. And just think of it like this. If this is familiar, you find yourself in a crisis of some sort and uh, there's a sense of panic about you because this crisis happens. It can be, you know, interpersonal, it could be financial, uh, could be regarding your health. Something comes up and it creates a, an initial flood of anxiety. You're in a crisis. You're worried about something. And, you know, what happens next is, is often the real telling feature of where we are in our growth. And if we're honest, many times we try to remedy the situation immediately by some of our wisdom or some experience that we've had and how we fixed it in the past. Or we go to all sorts of different ways to, to, Address the problem, and it's not often the case, or at least not often enough, where we immediately go to God, the one who really has the ability to help us in any crisis. Even when we got ourselves into, He's willing to help us out of. Yet, in crisis, we go to some other source, something other than God, and really what it reveals is, we either are ignoring the promises of God, maybe we're ignorant of the promises of God, But oftentimes it's it's worse. It's that we just don't believe the promises of God and when something in real life happens And it's a crisis. I've got to get myself out of it We don't go to God who can get us out or help us out or help us with We just settle on finding some manipulation so that we can write the situation right away We can feel better and not be less anxious more comfortable For me, that's common. That's a that's a constant struggle. That is not something i've gotten over uh, it's it continually as a challenge when crises arise, what do I do? Well, what we see as a pattern in the text before us is this kind of a thing. And the Israelites try to fix their own problem. And it reveals a lack of belief in the promises of God. And it also shows what God still does with those whom he loves. He gives reason for repentance by showing what will happen insofar as his justice is concerned or his short-term discipline. But he does that to jar them into repentance so they would believe again upon his promises. And then he restates his promises, maybe with new language or new metaphors. But he states again his faithfulness and promises what will ultimately be true when Messiah is in full reign. Now remember, we're reading a document that's 2,700 years old. We have more revelation because the Bible was more complete after the time of Isaiah In the person of Christ primarily. So some of what he is looking forward to, the coming of the Holy Spirit, the coming of Jesus himself, it's been fulfilled. We are looking back at a more complete picture than you see in Isaiah. But there's still more to come. It's true. Jesus has already come and is reigning from the right hand of his father. But there is yet more of a kingdom to be revealed. And he's working that out in our time and will ultimately do this thing this great work of consummation eventually. I want to read chapter 31, just nine verses, and I'll read the first two verses of chapter 32, which will give us a flavor for what's coming next. So please follow as I read God's holy and inspired word. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. And yet he is wise and brings disaster. He does not call back his words, but will arise against the house of the evildoers and against the helpers of those who work iniquity. The Egyptians are man and not God. And their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, the helper will stumble. And he who is helped will fall, and they will all perish together. For thus the Lord said to me, as a lion or a young lion growls over his prey, and when a band of shepherds is called out against him, he is not terrified by their shouting or daunted at their noise. So the Lord of hosts will come down to fight on Mount Zion and on its hill, like birds hovering. So the Lord of hosts will protect Jerusalem. He will protect and deliver it. He will spare and rescue it. Turn to him from whom people have deeply revolted, O children of Israel. For in that day everyone shall cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which your hands have sinfully made for you. And the Assyrian shall fall by a sword, not of man, and a sword, not of man, shall devour him. And he shall flee from the sword, and his young men shall be put to forced labor. His rock shall pass away in terror, and his officers desert the standard in panic, declares the Lord, whose fire is in Zion and whose furnace is in Jerusalem now just the first two verses of the next chapter. Behold, a king will reign in righteousness and princes will rule in justice. Each will be like a hiding place from the wind, a shelter from the storm, like streams of water in a dry place, like the shade of a great rock in a weary land. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Lord, we all know what it's like to be in some kind of crisis. Help us to trust in you when those difficult challenges come, to to believe your promises and to consult you, to come to you, to call upon you. Lord, we profess, at least with our mouths, that we believe in you, that we know you. Yet, admittedly, we are quick to seek our own remedies to problems or even to ignore you when we should be most reliant upon you. Lord God, strengthen our faith in what we know is ultimately true about you and your faithfulness and your grace to us in Christ, so that we might rely upon you not only in times of ease or peace, but especially in times of uncertainty and trial. pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. The more that I uh, meet people and interact with them, I become convinced that virtually virtually everybody believes in two realities that somehow make up our existence. I'm not speaking in strict philosophical uh, disciplines here. I'm just saying when you talk to people, they generally, even if they say that they're not religious, they will speak in terms that reveal they think there's something behind what you can see there's the physical world all the things you can see uh, that you could touch that you strive after things that you can that are tangible but they'll confess that there's got to be something else at work behind it they will say what they know that they know what it is uh, but there are two realities there's the physical and then there's the spiritual or the metaphysical uh, that which is behind and works behind the scenes uh, people are very spiritual today and that means that they believe in there is some there is something spiritual. I find most people I run into, it doesn't take long into a conversation uh, where I find out they have that kind of a belief, that kind of worldview. The problem is that for most people, and this happens for Christians, and it happened for Judah for sure. And we can relate with this. For most people, the physical world dominates their perception or their experience. It's the things that are in our face, the real world that we're in. I mean, that's the thing that we uh, live and deal with so uh, in such an upfront manner. Only when something doesn't go right in the physical world, if you put it that way, uh, do we pause and wonder about what's behind the events. Now, for believers, through Christ, in the sending of his Spirit, and the revelation we're given in his Word, we have an insight to that which is spiritual, the promises of God, uh, the will of God, his description of things physical. So the right order would be that God speaks to us about the spiritual things that are behind the physical things. And as we understand God's revelation about these things, we can cope with the physical world, the tangible things that come our way. The problem is that gets reversed in most people's lives, especially if people don't know God. Uh, they're created in the image of God, so they have a sense of spirituality. Everybody does. But they see through the lens of the physical world, and then they define the spiritual based on what they see in the physical. So if something doesn't look right or fair in the physical, they make up a description of what the spiritual must be like. And it's very—it's driven much by what's inside of their, in their emotions and their feelings and how they're perceiving the outward world. See how backwards this is? So what they see physically, they think that's the real thing. And it should teach us the spiritual, when in reality, it's the spiritual, it's the will of God, it's God's revelation that gives us perspective to cope with what happens physically or to recognize what happens in the real world. Now, why is that so important? Well, at the practical level, it drives decisions we make. It it drives choices. It drives actions. And that is the problem for Judah, and it's a constant problem for us we have to acknowledge. They are faced with a crisis. It's a, it's a nasty crisis. I mean, they have the most powerful nation in that part of the world at that time with its chariots and its horses and its army that's already come down upon their northern counterparts and the other nations around. They are next. And even though they have the temple and they have some physical reminders of God's commitment to them and his promises to them, they still freak out. I mean... Just like we Christians, and we have all the promises. We come to church every week. We talk spiritually with each other and our families, and we encourage each other. But then the crisis comes, and we freak out. And that's the freak out we have happening here. They go to Egypt, of all places. I mean, the place that enslaved them back in antiquity, they go back to Egypt for help rather than call upon God. What we learn, though, on the bigger scale is that when this happens, I say when, not if, when this happens... God, by His Word, will remind us of ultimate truth, spiritual truth, the promises that will come to pass. And as we are confronted again with those promises, repentance is worked in us when we realize how foolish it is to trust anything other than God in His promises. He'll work repentance in us. He'll, that will have the effect of giving us obedience. And then through building up His people, we will have the impact of sharing the light of Christ to more people. And this is how God moves his kingdom. His kingdom is an invisible kingdom where people are changed because of their confrontation with Messiah. They believe on him because of his grace and they're changed and they enter this, this process and they still struggle like we struggle, but God continues to give his promises a, a fresh, a, a fresh display to us so that we can again be renewed. And we go through this process and we're restored in many respects Now that's not without some lumps and that's what we see happen with the israelites But recognize this bigger picture god brings about his righteous rule in the present now Through the spiritual growth of his people Who are looking for his ultimate reign in the future. It's not that it isn't already it is But it's to come in a greater way Let's look at the first three verses as I would say the foundation to understanding these two chapters you get in the first three verses a clear picture of what the crisis is and the response of Judah and why this is so much like what we experience, uh, but we also see what's wrong with it, and that's important. And we're called to trust again in God's promise and provision, uh, and that's what we'll get. Verse 1, you have this warning to Judah for what they are doing. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. He's not denying the power and the might of horses and chariots. He's denying that the physical realities are ultimate. That there's more to this. You're trusting the wrong thing. I I know it's powerful and they're strong and I get why you would fall for that. But the spiritual is what you have to lay hold of, do, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. You know, it was King David just uh, 300 years before Isaiah, uh, who by the Holy Spirit penned Psalm chapter 20. It had to have been a psalm the people were familiar with. Um, the psalms were sung, they were read, they were memorized, they were spoken of, very, very uh, well used in Judah. Granted, they were in a time of, of spiritual desert, uh, so they didn't have as much exposure to the word as maybe they had, had in the times past. But Psalm 20 probably be a psalm they many had memorized. In that psalm, in the seventh verse, it says, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we, the people of God, we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Now, despite this spoken profession, Judah was Instead, trusting in chariots and horses. Absolutely. That's what they were doing. Maybe they didn't even recognize a disconnect. You know, sometimes we say things outwardly. We do this in modern times, a profession of our faith in God. We trust it'll provide for our needs, but we're constantly anxious about our needs. But we're saying it with complete sincerity when we come to church or in private, when we're praying, we know God, you will meet all of our needs according to your riches and glory. But then we immediately, it's like the second we get up from our knees, we're freaking out about how to pay for this or do that or or how will we get this or what will. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Yet we see in verse 1, woe to you, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses and trust in chariots. They're doing the exact thing God says not to do. They felt the heavy hand of Assyria. That was their crisis. At least it was their presenting crisis. I want to be clear about that. It's absolutely, if you'd ask them, what's your problem? Assyria. Assyria's our problem. No, that's actually not it. Your problem is unbelief. I would say to you, and I don't mean to be insensitive because I can only imagine what you may be going through. I know how it is when I'm in a crisis. I don't want to hear the pastor or anybody else tell me what I'm going to say if I'm going to say it anyways. The crisis that you think is your crisis ain't your crisis. It's unbelief. It's maybe ignorance of God's promise. could be that. But it's still unbelief because you don't know what to believe on. But that's my problem. It's not the crisis and its presenting nature. It's what we believe behind it that's the crisis for us. That's where we need God's grace. We need God's grace not first to get us out of the crisis, but to give us faith, more faith, to believe his promises. Then we confront the crisis. Verse 2 speaks of how God will deal with this Egypt that they're placing so much trust in. Their remedy will fall. Their solution will show itself to be no solution. Verse 2, and yet he is wise, God, he's wise to what they're doing. He is wise and brings disaster. He does not call back his words. If he makes a promise and tells us to do it this way, our remedy will not replace it ever. He's wise to that. He's wiser than us. That's why he set it up the way he did to begin with. He is wise and brings disaster. He does not call back his words, but will arise against the house of evildoers and against the helpers of those who work iniquity. Isaiah calls to our attention a profound, eternal truth that's so easily dismissed when we come under duress. What we see in the flesh is only part of the story. The crisis that's presenting is only part of it. It's not even the most important part of the story. We have to remember that the world is primarily driven spiritually by the will of God. That's what's true. The spiritual reality that drives the, it's the spiritual reality that drives the physical one. Praise God that He gives us some insight and ability to deal with this by giving us His Spirit and His Word. Verse 3. We won't understand anything until we grasp what this verse says. The Egyptians, the ones that are going to go for help, they're going to help them with their chariots and their horses, that they're going to get rescued uh, from the Assyrians by the, the Egyptians, the ones you seek for help that you think will bring you security, the Egyptians are man and not God. That should be enough. You're going to a source or a remedy that cannot really ultimately help you, certainly not like the one who is your friend. And their horses are flesh, and not spirit. Do you see the dominance, if you will, of or the superiority of that which is spiritual? It's not to say one is good or one is one is bad. It just means that one drives the other and is servant to the other. In the will of God, the power of God, is superior to any visible power we see before us, whatever it is. When the Lord stretches out his hand, that's a spiritual stretching, and It says the helper will stumble, that's Egypt, and he who is helped will fall. So if you relied on this weak, impotent remedy, it's going to fall and you will too if you're leaning upon it. If you have a crutch that is rubber and you lean on it, you will fall. It may look like it could hold you up, but it has no ability to really do it. The helper will stumble and he who is helped will fall and they will all perish together. God is their spiritual ally, and He is far mightier than the Egyptians, and He's far mightier than the Assyrians. The Egyptians, if they had some spiritual power, that might make the situation different, but as it is, they're simply men and not God. Flesh and not spirit. What is God? God is a spirit, but He's infinite. He's eternal. Unchangeable in his being, in his wisdom, his power, in his holiness, his justice, his goodness and truth. All these, that's what God is. That's who is their friend. That's who is their ally. What's Egypt? Just men. What's your crisis? It's just of men. But you have God and you have his promises. And this is a call to Judah to remember the promises of God that his promises are greater than the greatest thing you can see, which are chariots and horses coming from Assyria. And you need to go get some more from Egypt. It, greater than all this are his promises to you, to us. Joshua said so wonderfully to the people of God who were struggling with crisis. Don't you know, he says essentially to the church in that time, don't you know that not one word of God has failed Not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed, Joshua said. How about this promise? If you would confess your sins, God is faithful and he is just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's no further crisis about whether you're forgiven. How about the promise to help us in our walk with Christ? He will give us the Spirit of God. And Paul writes to the Galatians, in the Spirit of God has fruit, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against these things. There's no law. That's a promise of God to believers. He gives us so many promises. Believers, we have to believe them. We have to trust they'd be true. I know part of why you're here is to hear the promises again. That's why we come together to worship. It's one of the reasons to hear the promises again. Because we'll walk out and we'll forget crisis will come. It could be the email you get that you checked this afternoon and boom, crisis. Remember the promises of God to you. It says in Psalm 84, For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. It says in Psalm 103, a psalm we love to use for our assurance of pardon. But that whole psalm, that whole psalm is is so blessed. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with goods so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. With all these promises, with all these spiritual truths, with all these realities, whatever the crisis is, you can face it. Philippians, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches, In glory, not the riches of man, which are so limited, but he'll supply your every need according to what? His riches. That's a storehouse that never stops. If you're struggling with wisdom, here's a promise for you. James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach. It will be given to him. In Proverbs 18, verse 10, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. Run there. That's where to run. That's the promise of God. That's where you'll be safe. Jesus said, before he departed from his disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. Don't freak out. Believe in God. Believe also in me, Jesus says. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? What about the promise we all memorized first Sunday in January? In Isaiah 12:2? What a promise for us all to remember. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and I will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song and he has become my salvation. I don't want anyone to feel guilty if you've been struggling with this. What I want you to do is be renewed by the promises of God in front of us. That's what we should get out of this. Uh, Don't feel bad again how we fell off the trust wagon. God gives us the word so we continually are brought back on. He loves us. He's not throwing us off. This is going to be the experience of believers. We'll struggle like this. And he'll continue to give us his grace He'll continue to provide his word and he pours out his spirit. That's the promise that he makes to the people in Isaiah's time that they didn't fully realize like we do. Now, let's continue in the text. One of the most notable promises God makes, he makes over and over again. And we see it again in verses 4 through 9. And this helps us. Uh, to be certain that God always works righteous judgment. He is always just. He always gets the balance of justice and he writes it no matter what it looks like in the world. It may look like the unrighteous are winning. It may look that we'll lose if we don't come up with some remedy to fight them off. But the fact is God will work the scales and they'll be righted and we can be sure of that and rest in that. And that helps us not to be so anxious. In fact, he will fight for his people. He always will. It says in the text here, uh, in two different ways, this very thing, how he will be advocates for his people in justice, in bringing his judgment. He uses the metaphor of an animal twice, two very different animals. Look at verse 4. This is a picture of God fighting on behalf of his people over their enemies. For thus the Lord said to me, as a lion or a young lion growls over his prey. So imagine a lion who has just killed its prey in its over its prey guarding it so that birds of prey or other things can't get at it or in this case and when a band of shepherds perhaps it was as graphic as it is it's it's one of the shepherd's sheep or livestock and the shepherd comes to get the lion away Lions not like a coyote that'll run when a person comes not like a buzzard that'll run when a person comes When a band of shepherds is called out against him, he is not terrified by their shouting. There's no enemy of yours that God's scared of. He stands over his prey and laughs at, growls at anyone who would try to take us. That's the picture of how he protects us. He is not terrified by their shouting or daunted at their noise. So the Lord of hosts will come down to fight on Mount Zion on its hill. God's pictured as a predator, a fierce predator who owns his prey when it's his. Whatever's his, he protects, and nobody can get at it, and he's not daunted in the least. He's not even nervous when something comes to threaten us. That's our God protecting us. That's the picture. But there's something else, more gentle given it's a picture. I love how Scripture uses completely different metaphors to describe his attributes. Verse 5, like birds hovering, so the Lord of hosts will protect Jerusalem. Have you ever seen Uh, A female bird protect the eggs or the young that she has in a nest. She doesn't care who it is uh, that's threatening. She will just keep fluttering around that nest. Can only do so much physically, being small, but will not stop watching over and caring for, nurturing, protecting, warding off. Like birds hovering, so the Lord of hosts will protect Jerusalem. He will protect and deliver it. He will spare and rescue it. You don't need the Egyptians, Judah, This is God's city. He will protect it far greater than you can. He's a fearless predator and he's a fearless protector. And really you ought to fear him and trust him more than you fear or trust anyone or anything else. We see what he can do. Knowing what is true and what will come to pass like this, knowing this about our God and how he'll protect us, will prompt us to rethink our actions. Verse 6 says this, turn to him from whom people have deeply revolted. The God that you've insulted by this going to Egypt, turn now to that God. Don't turn with the Egyptians and the Assyrians and how they've deeply revolted. Turn to him from whom people have deeply revolted, O children of Israel. And turning to him away from those other things, that's repentance. That's what repentance is. It's turning from something to the right thing who is God. And it's it's marked by the casting down of false securities. That's what happens in verse 7. For in that day, everyone shall cast away his idols. What day? The day that they turn from the people to God. For in that day, everyone shall cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which your hands have sinfully made for you. You are trusting in these things. You're putting your stock in these things. Turn from these things that you trust in and not in the promises of God know that the certain future of God's enemies is coming. And knowing this should embolden our faith in the true and living God in the face of even the Assyrians or whatever crisis it is. Look at verse 8. And the Assyrian shall fall by a sword. How on earth can that happen? Easy for us. We know what happens. You already know what's going to happen to the Assyrians. They fall. But when you're in Israel, that's not what your picture is. Uh, your enemy looks really strong. Your crisis looks really strong right now, far stronger. If I told you God will deliver you, ha, what do you know, pastor? You don't have any clue how bad my crisis is. I think the Assyrians are greater than your crisis. And the Assyrian shall fall by a sword not of man, and a sword not of man shall devour him. Lest anyone think that they got themselves out by their own remedy, God will lay low the Assyrians without the Israelites slaying one of them. We'll see this. And he shall flee from the sword, and his young men shall be put to forced labor. His rock, that's their king, their leader, shall pass away in terror. And his officers desert the standard in panic, declares the Lord, whose fire is in Zion and whose furnace is in Jerusalem. The fire in Zion, the picture of God's presence with his people, the picture of the city of Jerusalem uh, being a figurative a picture of God's presence among his people. And that fire and that furnace burns, and nobody can approach it. And the picture of that rock, that king and his deputies or his officers and how they fall will set up the picture of how the real king and his princes will reign. A country that threatens God's people will soon be humbled and subdued. The country the Israelites are so afraid of will be brought completely low. Nothing more certain than God's righteous justice eventually. Unless you think it's so far away, none of us will live that long. So God's justice comes swiftly. Brothers and sisters, it's important for us to gather something here that translates through the ages. The people of God should never, ever, ever envy the unrighteous. We should never, ever envy those who brag about their riches and their power and their status. America's celebrity culture glorifies narcissists and egomaniacs. Don't fall into admiration of these people. Their end, unless they repent, is awful and it's tragic. Pity the kind of celebrity American culture built up and glorified. Judah was told not to admire Assyria. They were not to envy Assyria. They were commanded not to long to be Assyria because his rock shall pass away in terror and his officers desert the standard in panic. Christians, uh, we need the same kind of command about any kind of jealousy for a person or a thing that does not know God. What about a longing for a wicked world to accept us or tell us to belong? Be sure of God's eventual justice and let us make sure by God's grace that our passions and our devotion are on the right side. Chapter 32 then paints a picture of a future reality and i'll move through swiftly you'll see what this picture is it's a picture found in messiah it's a picture of when messiah comes and when he sends his spirit and it's a picture that has begun in the time of christ coming and His sending of the spirit it goes on now as he sits at the right hand of the father calling his people to himself and it will be culminated or consummated when jesus returns again We live in a glorious time of God's kingdom being built by God's spirit, working through his people and his word. It's a wonderful time to be alive, even if it's difficult in the locales that the church finds itself, and maybe we go through terrible suffering in the process, but when we proclaim the promises of god and are clear the people of god are built up in the midst of those times and the kingdom actually grows even though it may not look like it from a physical earthly stand. remember don't think the way the world thinks about what a powerful kingdom is this is a kingdom that we are part of that can never stop even if it looks weak on the outside it's actually strong it's very much the opposite of what appears to be that is actually the case and knowing this ultimate future when you know this when you're confident about what i'm speaking of here then it will spawn repentance that's perpetual. We'll repent when we hear these things. We won't act like, no, God, that's not me. We'll know it's true, and we'll repent, we'll turn to him. And that will spawn or motivate obedience to his word. And that obedience brings blessing and a sense of belonging. It's an assurance that it provides. Now, this is all for people who are in Christ. This isn't how we earn our status in Christ. We're in Christ, and this is what God does as he cultivates us and grows us. Verse 1 of chapter 32, Behold, a king will reign in righteousness, and princes will rule in justice. Unlike the rock that falls from Assyria and the officers who fall, this king in righteousness will reign, and princes will rule in justice. Each will be like a hiding place from the wind, talking in particular about his princes, his people, the leaders of his people even, as some commentators will say. Each will be like a hiding place from the wind, a shelter from the storm, like streams of water in a dry place, like a, sh- a like the shade of a great rock in a weary land, all things that protect and provide and shelter. When the people repent, they will be blessed with a leadership that pro- that protects and provides, and God provides that ultimately in Christ, our King. Isaiah calls Judah out for their disbelief and their rebellion. The effect is repentance. Verse 3, then the eyes of those who see will not be closed. And the ears of those who hear will give attention. The heart of the hasty will understand and know. And the tongue of the stammerers will hasten to speak distinctly. There's a transformation, a change. Knowing this truth of our king's reign will cause a repentance, obedience, blessing. And we'll see things changed. The fool will no more be called noble. That's the world we live in. Fools are being called noble. Scoundrels are called honorable. But that will no longer be the case. God will write that ultimately. And he'll write it to some degree as God's people are faithful. It'll bring these things to light even in our time. There's some present blessing that happens when we live in light of what's future positive or certain. Verse 6, for the fool speaks folly and his heart is busy with iniquity to practice ungodliness, to utter error concerning the Lord, to leave the craving of the hungry unsatisfied and to deprive the thirsty of drink. It is remarkable how relevant God's word is. How timeless it is. Because you see all sorts of foolish talk and no real relief of the craving of the hungry or any relief of the thirst of those who need a drink. As for the scoundrel, his devices are evil. He plans wicked schemes to ruin the poor with lying words, even when the plea of the needy is right. Fools and scoundrels abound in the land of rebellion. But with God's revelation comes repentance and a change in behavior by his people. We're talking about his people. This is not a a message to the nation. This is... A message to the people of god now people of god were a nation at one time now we're all throughout the nations and it's the people of god who must focus on the word of god and how it impacts us and god will have an impact through us as we are sanctified it warns against people who are becoming complacent in the midst of them they were living in a time where the harvest was still plentiful but within a year that was all going to change says in verse 9 rise up you women who are at ease Hear my voice, you complacent daughters. Give ear to my speech. In little more than a year, you will shudder, you complacent women. For the grape harvest fails, the fruit harvest will not come. Tremble, you women who are at ease. Shudder, you complacent ones. Strip and make yourselves bare and tie sackcloth around your waist. That's a way of saying, show mourning. Realize what's coming. He wants them to be full knowers of the truth. Beat your breasts for the pleasant fields, for the fruitful vine, for the soil of my people growing up in thorns and briars. Yes, for all the joyous houses in the exultant city. i be in mourning about what will happen. For the palace is forsaken, the populous city deserted. The hill and the watchtower will become dens forever. A joy of wild donkeys, a pasture of flocks, will be overrun. When will this end? This is a terrible thing. It's going to happen in a year from this time is what he's saying. Well, here, verse 15, here's the promise. Until the spirit has poured out upon us, poured upon us from on high, and the wilderness becomes fruitful field, and the fruitful field is deemed a forest, then justice will dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness abide in the fruitful field. This is a picture of God eventually sending his spirit when Messiah comes. For us, when he came. But the impact will have ripple effects until he comes again. It will work to sanctify you, us, so we have an impact, so we have the presence of Christ on the earth through his people, in part now, because it's coming in full when he comes again. And the impact has already become great. Verse seventeen and the effect of the righteous of righteousness will be peace. And the result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. My people will abide in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings, and in quiet resting places. And it will hail when the forest falls down, and the city will be utterly laid low. Happy are you who sow beside all waters, who let the feet of the ox and the donkey range free. The, the effect of the people of God growing in God's grace will be to have a mitigating effect of God's judgment in the place they're, they're put. So one of the greatest things you could do as a citizen of this great land Is to be a christian to be faithful to the word of god To love christ and do what he commands and even if nobody thanks you for it and they won't You'll be doing the greatest thing you could do to stave off The judgment that is sure to come in god's time But recognize what we're called to do now a more personal note I want to close with because I know this is big picture stuff, but I think it's important It's how god lays it out But as I mentioned at the beginning, people think in terms of spiritual and physical and they see their tangible problems and they deduce spiritual things that aren't right. Well, as believers, we know that spiritually we have to recognize and have right perspective that will help us with the physical. And when we get this right relationship between the physical and the spiritual, that helps us in our everyday life in the most basic ways. I was reading a sermon by Ray Ortland on this passage, and I think what he does on the personal application side of things is is beautiful and encouraging, and I want to leave it with you as the final thought. He says the richness and fullness of life comes from what is spiritual, not earthly. Money, he says, for example, can buy a house, but it can't make a home. Money can put food on the table, but it can't put laughter and joy around the table. Money can buy you or fly you to Paris, but it can't kindle romance there. What money can do, it can make you an attractive target for thieves and lawsuits. There is no security in money. There is no life for us in any tangible thing. And that's the point, whatever it is for you. There is no life for us in any tangible thing. What makes for life comes not from this world, but from the grace of God. Therefore, a heart at one with God is the secret to life. To be at one with his will, to know what his will is and what he reveals, to know what is spiritually true, that is the secret to life. And he closes by saying this. To have God is to have all things. To trust him is to be saved. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Lord, we confess that we are very drawn to the physical, the circumstances around us. And Lord, I am positive that just like me, my brothers and sisters, they have any number of anxieties or crises that they are thinking of right now, that though their minds are focused on worshiping you, thinking about your word, as soon as they walk out of this place, there'll be something that confronts them, that that worries them. I pray, oh God, that you would Give them a a sense of your love for them, your promises for them, even if they got themselves into the situation. Just impress upon them your great love to them in Christ. And then prompt them to call out to you. To not try to make up a remedy that doesn't honor you or doesn't acknowledge you. But make us to fall upon you. Trust you, Lord. And help us to know that ultimately the truth that is coming, that's coming to pass, that Jesus will reign over all these things. He does now and will in ultimate fullness in some, at some point. Make that reality, cause us to repent, give us obedience, and bless us. Bless us that we might manifest your presence here on earth so that many, many more would come to Christ. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.